and welcome to Episode 7 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Still to be joined right now by Derek Gould. Derek is the Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. You can give Derek a follow on Twitter, at dgould. Derek, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Derek, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Oh, man, that's, uh, I would imagine... If we go back to the beginning, like the genesis of it, it was probably just playing catch with like my father or grandfather. I mean, I, uh, I mean, that baseball was just always something that we did, you know, whether it was uh, pulling out the gloves and um, my grandfather was big into trying to make trick throws and throw behind the back and throw as fast as possible and catch it with his bare hand as he threw it and all these wonderful things that he would do. And, um, you know, we, uh, we would I'd play with the schoolyard kids and or you know the neighborhood kids in the schoolyard, and we turned a cul-de-sac near where I grew up into a baseball field. I mean, you know, kind of the manhole cover was second base, that kind of stuff. Um, I, uh, I I say all these things because it, that's really how I I learned to love the game was was playing it, um, often not well, but always playing it. And uh, because I, I I spent most of my childhood in the time zone baseball forgot. Um, I grew up in Colorado and the closest major league baseball was the Kansas city Royals or Arizona spring training. Um, well, we had triple a baseball there when I was a kid and the Rockies didn't come until 93, which was, uh, my last year in high school. So, um, I, uh, I grew to love baseball by playing it, but also from, a, from afar, which is, I think why my fondness for baseball is always tied to a fondness for newspapers because that's how I would get my baseball information. I mean, I would buy the Rocky Mountain News every morning, uh, Daily Camera, Denver Post, and clip box scores of my favorite team and keep track of them that way. And then I used I'm to do that special. too. Yeah, yeah. I, I still have some of my notebooks. My son and I came across them here not too long ago as I was cleaning out the office. And um, then on real special occasions, I got to go to a bookstore. Um, now, mind you, this is before the advent of the internet and all this stuff. So on special occasions, I would get to go to a, a bookstore um, that would get Sunday newspapers from around the country. And so I could uh, get the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune, um, and read their, their baseball coverage, read their, their obviously very famous and now Hall of Fame baseball writers and those huge notebooks that folks would do. And I just devour them. And so I think uh, my fondness for baseball and my interest in baseball, I had to seek it out. Um, and it became, or actually, you know what, it probably really just further sparked a real love for newspapers. Without having uh, a local team on television every night, did you have baseball on TV every night? No, um, did not have baseball on TV every night. Um, had WGN, so had the Cubs, ever, you know, um, as much as they were on, um, if if you could get it. And then uh, uh, we didn't have cable when I was a kid, so I used to find out, find reasons to uh, go to friends' house or, or friends who um, uh, friends of the family who did have uh, cable, and I worked out a deal so I could go see uh, go see some of the ESPN national games every weekend, um, and I would often volunteer to babysit in exchange for it, um, just so I could see some of the games. Um, but uh, no, I, I didn't I didn't have baseball on TV, um, which is why like when I did have when we did have like the game of the week and you know stuff like that on NBC and. Um, you know, World Series and All-Star Games, I had videotapes of those things because I would tape them when they were on so that on the days I didn't have anything, I at least had something to watch. 
We uh, just wrapped up award season here, Major League Baseball and the BBWAA just wrapped up award season. You had a vote for the NL Cy Young. Tell me your thought process behind your votes. You know, I, it's uh, it's pretty much the same every year. I mean, I you kind of keep a running tally of names to to know and, um, you know, it's through the year who's performing well. And, I mean, you know, and, and I mean, you can look at the stats to do that. I you know, see enough games, watch enough games to know who's really pitching well and who's putting together a strong season. And then come September, uh, maybe even late August, but uh, come September, I want to start make, making sure that I do the reporting um, because this, the stats are going to be there. I know, I know where to look those up. I know that it's accessible, um, but the reporting, you know, you want to make sure you get, or at least for me, um, you want to get a wide variety of opinions. And to do that, I, I start collecting them as, you know, as visiting teams come in or as I go on the road, um, talk to other reporters, talk to things like that, just so I can start uh, picking my brains. It's, it's it's more informal than anything. You just kind of pick up a conversation. I like to, um, with the Cy Young, I like to talk with players and um, some other people just about what they value in pitchers, um, not necessarily who they would vote for, but why, you know, why does 200 innings resonate with you? Why does 33 starts, what uh, what number do you look to as a as a, as a real proof of a guy um, pitching well over the long haul, you know, does ERA do that and um, things like that. I had some interesting conversations with uh, a few pitchers this year about some of the new numbers that are out there as well that are gaining popularity and, and what they mean. So, um, like you know, what, I, like I, FIP? I, yeah, yeah, feeling that actually that is exactly one. It was uh, you know like uh, FIP and uh, um, ERA plus was one that uh, got some attention. Um, you know, something that normalizes for the home ballpark. Um, yeah, the defensive independence stuff was, was also really interesting, especially for guys who, you know, around the Cardinals, um, Dave Duncan's influence is still very clear, even though he has stepped aside as pitching coach, you know, that, uh, contact oriented, uh, approach, um, you know, they wonder if, uh, if numbers that take away the ground balls that they get or d- diminish them or, or dismiss them entirely sort of hurts them as a, as a pitcher or as a candidate. So, uh, it was, it was things like that. Um, you know, and then I, I start that, final two weeks of the season really starting to put together um, different individual cases for guys um, look at the numbers look at the things and um, you know for me uh, I've, I've voted on the rookie of the year manager of the year and Cy Young and I had Cy Young for I guess the last four or five seasons here um, and and for me I've, I've really kind of come to appreciate and uh, and value consistency over the long haul um, lots of pitchers have spikes of performance, um, great singular games, great runs of four games. Um, but I do try to find a way to, to measure and to look at uh, how a guy is consistent throughout the season. And that means, you know, in the case of, you know, the, the seven, eight, nine, ten guys that, uh, that I look at as candidates, looking at what they do uh, through the course of the season and going through their game by games and trying to find out uh, you know, hey, this was a dead on period, or hey, this was a time when the bullpen was shattered, or you know, any any type of mitigating circumstances that could explain little blips. But you know, you can look at that consistency over the course of an entire season, over the course of the calendar, and not just rely on sort of the end product number. When do you find out what award you're voting for? I knew going into the season, um, but it's different from chapter to chapter. So um, you know, in St. Louis. Um, we, uh, we know we're, we're lucky enough to have a lot of voters here, um, a lot of eligible voters. Uh, some of that is because 
of the importance of baseball here and how many people cover it on a daily basis, both in my paper, but also at other papers and um, people who have been members of the baseball writers. But um, we also have uh, folks from the, the Sporting News, which used to be based here, and they are members of the Baseball Writers Association as well. So um, we aren't hurting like other chapters for, for voters, um, partially also because our paper allows us to, to vote for these awards. Uh, some papers have taken the stance that the writers should not vote for them. So um, we, uh, we, we know going in what we're going to vote for. Um, in, in some ways, it's based on seniority is the wrong word, but uh, um, let's see, uh, I guess, place on the beat. So um, MVP goes to our Hall of Fame writer and to one of the Cardinals beat writers. Uh, I'm the other Cardinal beat writer, so I get the Cy Young. Our columnist who covers a lot of baseball gets the other Cy Young, and then, uh, and then it moves down from there. Um, when I started on the beat, I got the Rookie of the Year award which is, was not a coincidence. And I knew going into the season that I was going to have it. Um, and then uh, the next year I was the manager. I covered, I got the manager of the year award and moved my way to Cy Young. So, you know, we, we kind of sorted out that way. So I know going in and I've known the previous years too. I, I just know that I'm going to vote for the Cy Young. Your ballot this year, you had R.A. Dickey number one, Kershaw two, Cueto three, Kyolos four, and Craig Kimbrell five. This was a year where there was no clear-cut winner. There was not an obvious choice. Uh, Dickey, Kershaw, and Cueto were all very close statistically. What separated Dickey for you from Kershaw and Cueto? Um, just then, you know what? You're exactly right. It was very close, um, and it's just uh, it just was being a tick better uh, in all in in the in the just being a tick better in a lot of the categories I looked at, um, you know, I, I, I tried to look at, okay, if you went through and took these guys and where they ranked in the national league and sort of added up an aggregate score, where would they be? If you looked at a guy who was, uh, I, I mentioned that consistency, who was, you know, stand out from April through September um, and had, you know, strong performances throughout um, that that also weighed in. So I, I think, uh, you know, I just I, I thought of some of the best games that I saw pitched as well. Um, I looked into that, uh, you know, and not just not that I saw in person, though. I did see Dickey pitch a tremendous game in person. Uh, I, I was there covering the Santana no hitter. And then the next day, uh, Dickey pitched probably even a better game than <laughs> against uh, against the Cardinals. So, um I, uh, you know, so I, I took into account individual games in the sense of who really had a standout kind of moment. And I, I tried to look at all, or not just moment, but a series of them. And I, I tried to look at all those pictures. And, and at each point, Dickie just had a slight edge over Kershaw. Um, I, I think it was a close vote for me between those two. Um, Cueto was just on the on the back end of that. Um you know, there there are certainly cases that you could put Cueto second and uh, Kershaw first and Dickey third. Um, I, I saw some arguments in that case, but uh, for me, it was those three guys above all others, and uh, Dickey just had the edge over Kershaw. How much emphasis do you put when you're evaluating players on modern metrics like wins above replacement, FIP, and some of the percentages, strikeouts per nine, strikeouts per walks, and, and things like that? Uh, I, I do look at the rates. Um, I think this year, for me, uh, and I've done this in the past, just it wasn't as uh, maybe focused. Um, 
I, I do look at all those things. I do look at wins above replacement. Um, I thought that was an interesting number this year. Um, it certainly heightened Cueto's uh, candidacy, and uh, I didn't need it to, to tell me that Cueto was was worthy of a top three vote. Um, it just kind of sort of validated that. Um, it offered up a, a new number to kind of use as an argument if ever I was challenged on uh, Cueto. Um, the, the rates are good, uh, and I do look at those. Uh, especially, you know, like you're talking about the strikeouts and everything like that. But I, I didn't want to. Um, this was this was a good reminder year to to realize there are ways to get outs beyond uh, strikeouts. Uh, you know, I, I think I answered so many questions down the stretch from reporters and people who were wondering if uh, Dickey would be held back because he threw a knuckleball, and and that just seems so silly to me. It's like, gosh, you know, the guy could throw it with his elbow. And if he's getting out, isn't that the purpose? Um, you know, what, why are we looking at the kind of pitch he throws and not look at the kind of pitcher he is? I mean, if we're voting on, and I have probably have used the line too much now, but if we're voting for the guy who has the best pitch, then why hasn't Rivera won a Cy Young? You know, I mean, it, it, this is just, I, I didn't want to say, okay, well, I need a fireballer to be a Cy Young because that's the classic definition of a dominant pitcher is somebody who throws 94-plus and has a wicked swing in this curve. If a guy has another way to get batters out and is doing it at a rate um, and with more success than other pitchers, then that's the best pitcher in the game regardless of how he's doing it. And I, I think, you know, in that vein, I, I recognized – that like Cueto, I mean, he didn't exactly have an overwhelming amount of strikeouts, but he got guys out. Uh, Kyle Loesch maybe is the the best example of that on my ballot. Where he, look, nobody had more balls in play when you're talking about that high end pitcher than him, and uh, but nobody had fewer walks. And and maybe it's the benefit of being around and covering most of his games, but a lot of that he did by design. You know, I mean, he would seek out batters that it, he would pitch around a guy if he knew he was going to cause him problems and get the next guy to ground out. And that was sort of a maturity as a pitcher that knew how to, how to use the stuff he had. And that meant getting soft contact. That meant in, inviting ground balls. Um, you know, I have voted for sinker ballers in the past who, um, you know, lead the league in ground outs and stuff and may not have that many strikeouts, but you can't ignore when you have that much evidence that that's the style of pitcher he is, and he's he's successful at it, and he's getting outs. It's not the it's not a fluke. Yes, he requ- requires a ground ball guy or a guy like close. Yes, he requires help from the defense, and he's not independent of it. But that's his game, and when it, when that's the premeditated approach, and you see the successful results of that i think that's worthy of looking deeper into and and even honoring and and a a spot with a spot on the ballot you had craig kimbrell at number five kimbrell had a Mm -hmm. a historically great year for reliever but there is that qualifier for a reliever relievers don't generate as much value as starters how do you how much do you weigh into relief appearances uh, a reliever's value versus starters value when you're uh deciding on cy young a lot i mean yeah uh, tremendous i mean it's it's it uh, it should be pretty revealing that it took a historic season and I voted him fifth. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the guy struck out more than half of the batters he faced. You're talking about someone who was absolutely dominant and 
um, in his role. And as I did the reporting and I started asking around to people about people, you know, I heard what you were describing a lot, you know, that, that look at the innings that a starter takes and the value of a high end starter is it's, it just absolutely uh, dwarfs what a reliever does in one inning. And I even had one pitcher tell me, well, think about what these starters you're talking about could do if they were closers. And uh, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty strong point, but I, I just felt that it would be, I, I just, as I was filling out my ballot and looking at it, I saw the top three pitchers. I saw a pool of three or four other starters who were all good and all deserving of votes. Um, and then I saw this one tremendous reliever who just had a, a season for the ages, and I didn't feel right leaving the reliever off my ballot um, if two of those other pitchers, you know, the Matt Keynes, Gio Gonzalez, Kyle Loches, didn't rise above him. And as I looked into it and looked into it, it really became clear and I really became comfortable with the idea of assuring that Kimbrell had a spot on my ballot. I just, he was very, he, he had a tremendous season and I, I didn't want that to be ignored. I want to get your take on the AL MVP race. I know you didn't vote for that this year, but that is a that is certainly a, an MVP discussion that got a lot of heat from both sides. The sabermetric mm-hmm. community obviously preferred Trout, and I guess the traditional BBWAA members preferred Cabrera. He won the award. Uh, if you were voting, who would you have voted for and why? That's a good one. I wish I could, uh, boy. Um, I, I see that the debate continues. <laughs> I'm not sure this would ever... Um, I, I'll be honest, I have read compelling arguments for both. And I, even like, this is so, this is even, even last night I was reading, uh, some additional arguments. And when I was asked a couple of days ago, I said, it just would be very difficult for me not to vote for Cabrera. Um, and, and, and then I started reading cases last night for both guys. And I'm like, wow, Trout was very impressive. Um, from so many of the things that uh, that I value when you dig deep into it. Um, I, 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 I would like to think that it's very clear if you're asked to vote who was the best player in the game, you would vote Trout, or who had the best, who, what player had the best season of anybody and is the best, most talented player, you'd vote Trout. It's that valuable part that really throws it for me. Um, and if I'm, I'm, I'm going to be probably a little bit too honest here. One of my hesitations in saying why well, I would, well, I have two hesitations in saying why well, I vote for Cabrera. One is I didn't have a ballot, and I try to respect a lot of the, you know, the folks who do have a ballot. Same thing with the Hall of Fame. I don't have a ballot, um, so I want to be very respectful of my colleagues who do and the, the opinion and the effort they put into it. And two, if I say Cabrera is the guy, and that that really is my instinct. Um, am I just going to be thrown into the, you know, the, the masses and said, oh, well, typical baseball writer doesn't have a clue, can't, <laughs> can't, can't, uh, can't function a cal, can't, uh, can't use a calculator, you know, somebody, you know, bringing baseball back to the dark ages with his thoughts. I, I'm really, I, I'm, you know what, I've become, and I'm probably being too blunt here, but I've become really sensitive to that in the past, uh, couple weeks and it's like every year at this time we're reminded of it it's it's very easy to 
bring out the pitchforks and the torches and take a run at the riders because a we actually have to vote. You know, we we do have to put pen to paper, and well now it's keyboard to email, but um, to vote, and it's very easy to take shots at us after the fact. Um, you know, some of the people who are our biggest critics in this regard um, seem very eager to dismiss the hours, um, days, and tons of effort that I, that I put into my ballot um, simply because I'm a member of an organization um, who has a ballot, who, ha- who has these awards, who they want to paint with a broad brush. And I, I think there's a supreme bit of hypocrisy and that's almost too strong of a word um, but I think that's what it is where some of the more vocal critics are telling the baseball writers who voted for the AL MVP or voted for the NL Cy Young or voted for the AL Cy Young in some fashions hey you guys need to dig deeper into the numbers um, and dig deeper into the information available so that you make an appropriate choice all the while they aren't digging deep into the electorate because they're painting with a broad brush. It's like they're looking at the triple crown numbers, um, the voting totals of the, of the electorate without looking into the individual work done by the electorate. I think that the AL MVP race brought out the worst in both sides, to be honest Probably. with you. I, I think that the coming from the sabermetric community, which is honestly where I, I think I see myself more, um, mm-hmm. I, I think Trout was the MVP. I don't think it was particularly close. But I think the tone of, if you don't think Trout's the MVP, you're a Luddite and an idiot and a fool who knows nothing about baseball, accomplishes nothing. And it's not true. Right. Right. I think that coming from the other side of, you were just stat geeks that don't watch the game, you're in your mother's basement, you had traditional writers, people like Bill Madden, do whole columns about why war is garbage. And I think to yeah. simply ignore information is poor form as well. Absolutely. And I think that I think but I think both sides are doing that. You know, I, I mean, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I think, you know, you can we can we can all take stats and bend and shape and form them to fit our arguments. Um, the real to a point. Talent, well, the real talent is knowing how to do that, is knowing how the stats are arrived at. So you use them responsibly. I think that's sort of where I'm going. I mean, if I throw out, I, I, I'm real reluctant to use some defensive stats, for example, um, because I don't know the equation behind them. I can't do it. So uh, I, I feel, I mean, I'll, I'll use them and, and I trust the people who calculate them, but I get real reluctant to use some of those numbers if I can't stand in front of a high school class and explain how they are arrived at and be like, uh, you know, I, I just, I feel like that's disingenuine. Um, and I work to understand them. And I, you know, I got, I got two parents who are, who were math teachers at one point in time. I, I'm, I'm not a, like, like you said, I, uh, you know, I'm not quite a Luddite when it comes to baseball. Right? And, and if anything, I had teachers say, man, why do you want to be a writer? You're not very good at writing. You're pretty good at math though. Maybe you should stick in math. <laughs> Um, you know, long ago. So, I mean, I, I, I'm not coming at it from a, a zero base of knowledge, um, but but I do think that uh, that all both sides can abuse 
the information that they want to use. And I agree wholeheartedly with you that if you have a bucket of information that you are willfully ignoring, that's a problem. And that's a problem on both sides. Uh, It's good for the game that there was this kind of debate, I guess. Uh, Mm -hmm. It did create... uh, it created really just obnoxiousness on both sides where it was Absolutely. coming from. It, it raises the question with the MVP awards, and I think it's – I don't think it's – you use the word hypocritical with the with – the I, co- I hesitate. I, that's too strong of a word, but I don't – if you have a better one, please let me know. Well, I'm not sure I'm, – I'm not sure because it's – the criticism didn't just come – after the decision was made and after the vote was made, the criticism was there leading up to it as well. It was right. the constant back and forth leading up to it. So it wasn't like the decision made and they were like, hey, look, Trout should have won. It was a debate for Trout going into it. It was a debate for Trout once the season ended saying, hey, he was the most valuable player. He had a historically great season. So I don't think, I don't think it came out of nowhere, Trout's Absolutely. case. I agree with you there. My, my point with that was more so that um, the most extreme critics – I heard often um, about the Trout-Cabrera decision. Their argument was that baseball writers didn't look deep enough into the stats or didn't look deep enough into the performance and all the information available to them to make their decision. And therefore, all of the voters did a poor job. I mean, I heard over and over again that the Baseball Writers Association of America made a poor decision. The Baseball Writers of America... They, they shouldn't have the vote. And it was this these grand sweeping judgments of baseball writers. Um, and maybe I'm sensitive to that. But I just was struck by the fact that those critics were saying, look deeper into the numbers to have better understanding. And here we are with full transparency, put, putting up all of our ballots, who voted what. And the people, and I'd like to think a majority of them did, if not all of them did, but the individual effort of the voters to come to a decision was completely dismissed. And I, I thought that was just a little bit odd that a group that would argue you need to look into the numbers would not give the same effort, the same birth, or the same requirement to also look into the electorate. Let's not paint with a broad brush. Just like I don't, you know, I wouldn't ever, ever say, well, the stack community has, has this. I would, I would say, well, this writer wrote something that I disagree with. This group of writers presented something I disagree with. Um, I, I, I refuse to accept some of the criticism leveled as I'll be, I will defend the group um, and I will defend the electorate um, because I value the effort and hours that folks put into this. And, and I think that there is a historical value. You know, I, I'll put this on Twitter, you know, one of another baseball writer, wrote that, you know, hey, people, you need to remember that these are our awards. They belong to us. And I wrote back, no, I don't I don't agree with that. I think the awards belong to history. It's our votes. But we do have a responsibility because I'm pretty sure, I'm going to go way out on a limb here, but I'm pretty sure that long after I'm gone, the American League MVP winner will be remembered. Okay, the National League MVP winner. I mean, you're etching something into history with these votes, and I, I think you have to take that responsibility seriously. Uh, and I, I think most, if not all, really do. And to kind of throw the scarlet letter on the whole group, and I like your word there, what I mean, to think that we all have to go to the ballpark and show our BBWA card and also have a 
red letter L stitched onto our blazers, I I think is wrong. (laughs) Well, I want to go back to the actual analysis of the players for a moment, because you said something interesting, which was Trout had the better season. Yes. Now, with the Cy Young Award, which you voted for for the last uh, handful of years, are you simply trying to pick who, who you felt had the best, who was the best pitcher that year? Yes. And with the MVP, you feel like that's different? It is. Um, because of the way the uh, the award is defined. What in the wording of the award? Just the word "valuable"? No, I, I don't have the. You know what? I don't have a ballot handy. But uh, I mean, "valuable" is the is the the uh, is the key word, um, and then how it how it embodies how it attempts to embody um, things beyond statistics, beyond just the back of the baseball card statistics, um, which. You can take any which direction, and I don't, I don't dismiss or, uh, or or uh, or refute that some in some ways, you know, the value is best measured by some of the new stats we have out there, whatever war and um, some of the other numbers that are out there that weren't available or weren't as mainstream or weren't even calculated or thought of when the MVP award started. Um, but but it is valuable. I, you know, this. Um, I'll give you the starkest example that I can give of between the Cy Young and the and the and the and the MVP in this regard. That's a question that I I get asked a lot. Was, um, well, you, you voted for like uh, Gio Gonzalez as an example, okay? Um, I, I didn't have him on my ballot, and this uh, this was met with some some of my colleagues and and even one of my mentors who I learned a lot from and have a great deal of respect for. Um, this this was not met favorably by some of them, um, but the argument that I received from fans was that he pitched the team to the playoffs, and how could I ignore that when Dickey didn't pitch a team to the playoffs? I'm like, what? Um, you know, I mean, if we want to go that route, then you know, why don't I just search for September and pick the best starter from there, or? You know, why don't I look at some of these these closers who, you know, Jason Mott or uh, Kimbrell or uh, Chapman, these guys who had a bunch of saves and a lot of close games that meant the world for their standings. Um, now, those were all valuable performances. Those were all, I mean, even you would say essential performances down the stretch for a team to uh, get in the playoffs. But the Cy Young is for the best pitcher in the league it's pretty bottom line you know it, that that's how it's described the best pitcher not the best pitcher on the best team not the best pitcher for a playoff bound team not the best pitcher in tough situations or in the clutch the best pitcher um i, I don't think we quibble on that now we can quibble on who was the best pitcher but the definition is pretty pretty succinct valuable is far different uh, valuable means different things to different people. Valuable means di- a different thing to a manager than it does to a general manager. Um, and and they're in the same game. You know, they're they're out for the same purpose. And that was uh, one of the interesting things about the Trout Cabrera thing is that GMs exactly. and talent evaluators seem to strongly prefer Trout, and players and managers seem to strongly prefer Cabrera. Bingo. You know, if you were to ask that same group of people, okay. Who is the best pitcher in the game? The GMs and the ball players and the and the managers would probably approach that with the same criteria. 
they may come at it from a different, or they may end, they may have a different answer in the end, but the way they go about their criteria is going to be very similar. If you ask them who is the most valuable pitcher, and we'll just keep it in that same vein, if you ask them who the most valuable pitcher is, all their criteria is going to be individualized. And, and that, that, I think, separates those two awards. For me, I have a problem not seeing the best player as not the most valuable player. Right. I, can't, I can't measure team success with an individual award. And I look at Trout, he, even defensive metrics can be inconsistent, especially for a player that doesn't have a baseline with Trout. Right. But I don't think it's, I think it's fair to say that Trout was a better defensive player than Cabrera. I don't think that's going out too far on a limb there. And no, I think no, we he, know, he, much he, better. that's a very sturdy limb. Right, that's a very no one's falling <laughs> off of that plank. <laughs> well, one is one is an elite defensive player. The other guy wasn't playing his position. That's right, and he was playing. Yeah. He's an elite defensive player and elite defensive position. And, and he's yeah, exactly. And he's a much better base runner. That much any any eye watching them play one game can tell you as well. Right. So we know, and you know, you said it earlier. He had a better season, and for me, he was the most valuable player. He was the best player, and thus, to me, he was the most valuable. He did everything well. Cabrera may have been a better hitter, but if Trout was the second best hitter in the league and also an elite defender and base runner, I would give him the edge. I can't weigh into the team like you know Cabrera led his team into the playoffs. I don't really believe into that. I don't buy into that. I think that for me, team success would not be counted towards an individual award at all. Oh, I mean, I, I I can't make that leap with you. I think that's I think that's one that I'm not quite willing to make. Um, now, that said, I don't think it overwhelms things. You know, could it be a tiebreaker? That that would be an interesting question. I'd have to give some thought to. Um, but I can't I can't entirely dismiss the way an individual influences a team or um, you know the way I, I see it or the way my reporting would bear out. You know, it's the same kind of thing where, um, you know, lineup dynamics being what they are and you see your different theories. Um, most of them saying some, or some of them saying it doesn't matter where a guy hits or how a lineup is set up or whatever. Um, other of them say that, you know, uh, a number three hitter is a big deal and will influence the hitters around him. You know, the pitches, the number two guy gets, um, the opportunities, uh, number four, number five guy has for to drive in RBIs. All those things are uh, are in play. Um, I I don't make the 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 connection between well Trout's team didn't make the playoffs and therefore he was not the most valuable player. I I, I don't make that uh, I don't have that litmus test um, when it comes to this stuff. I do I I, I do look at how much a player's influence over a team um, or how much a player has an influence over a team as best I can. Um, and some of that maybe is the reporting that goes into it. And you start to ask, okay, well, where did this guy fit in? Um, how, how valuable was this guy, you know, to this team within the clubhouse and not just not the leadership or chemistry or all that stuff, but the actual game play and, and how you saw him influence the outcome of the game. I, I think that is something that, I would look into for that award. 
Derek, I feel like we could talk about the ALMVP race for another half hour at least, but I do want to shift over to PEDs briefly. We do a lot of talk on performance-enhancing drugs on this podcast. Uh, Obviously, you're in St. Louis. There are ties to PEDs there, uh, certainly. What do you think of performance-enhancing drugs in baseball? How much do you think that they actually increased performance? Um, I I think they did increase performance, um, but uh, maybe not in the the way that we we have kind of – we've made it cartoonish. Um, you know, thinking bigger muscles, longer hits. Um, I think in in talking with people and uh, doing reporting and researching and reading as much as I could on the subject, um, and then you hear the practical application. Um, you know, when when McGuire made his admission um, that, that day, I was on a plane out to California. As, as after he made his admission, I was on a plane out to California to to have a sit down and spend a day. Actually, I ended up spending a couple days with him. Um, talking about it, talking about hitting, talking about his new role with the organization, all that, all that stuff, and um, you know, you hear it from other guys as well. But they they talk about the restorative power of, of these things and how you know the, the use of it allowed them not just to get stronger, but the bigger thing is uh, work out harder. Um, the, the the stamina uh, addition that was there. Uh, you can work out without the uh, the fallout, so, so to speak. And I, I think you have that element is ignored because, or too often that element is diminished or ignored, um, but I think it's a real part of it because baseball is such a uh, bruising, grinding, marathon game. You know, you, uh, you forget that the ability to recuperate, and if you can speed that up, is so valuable. If you can hit in August stronger than you hit in April, what a tremendous value that is. Um, if you can hit at 39 the same way you hit at 33, what you know, age 36, um, how fantastic is that? You know, what what kind of an edge does that bring? Um, so I, I don't think it's just bench press numbers and you know adding you know enough muscle. To, to get the extra two feet or whatever it is, you know, when you swing a bat. I think it's more the, the, re, the restorative power and being able to maintain strength through a season, even build strength, as you hear some guys describe, through a season um, that, that, it, that made it, that til- tilted the scales. And while steroids and amphetamines are different drugs and do different things to your body, that's mm-hmm. the same reason why players in the 50s and 60s took amphetamines, so they can exactly. play longer and play every day. It's, this, it's ethically the same exact thing. It is. A- absolutely. I, I, I would agree with you in that comparison. Absolutely. Do you think Mark McGuire's home run accomplishments are tainted? Do I think they're um... – I don't know. I, I mean, he, he hit him. He can't take him out of the record book. Uh, I, I'm I'm not so hard line that I don't see gray areas. Uh, like, uh, I, I mean, I, if this is the path you're going down, um, then I apologize for skipping ahead. But um, I, I would not have an issue with some of these guys being in the Hall of Fame um, if they're acknowledged users and it goes on their plaque. I mean, that would be the. This is my personal opinion, and I know not many, if anybody shares it. Um, but I would not mind seeing guys who use steroids, who tested positive, who had tremendous years, being in the Hall of Fame as long as it's on their plaque, just like Shoeless Joe. You know, I'd like for him to be in the Hall of Fame, 
but the fact that he was banned from baseball for life should be on his plaque, and he rose the same way. See, I actually agree with that, because I think that steroid use, for example, there's no question that Barry Bonds had a Hall of Fame career. I mean, are you kidding me? He's one of the best players to ever play. But Barry Bonds, steroids is part of his legacy. It's not all of his legacy. And I've actually, I've written on my website that I I think they should put it on the plaque, but I go back and forth. I think with players that actually tested positive, so with Manny and Palmero, I have no problem putting it on their plaque. With other players, with McGuire, with Sosa, with even Bonds, who we know used but didn't uh, actually test positive because there was no mm-hmm. testing at the time. Acknowledge it when they in the biographies of the players on the website, any literature the Hall of Fame sends out, but actually putting on the plaque there I think creates a bit of a gray area because there are players who we, I think, all suspect used quite heavily that mm-hmm. never tested positive at all. And I think you're picking and choosing then without really having a clear information. So I, uh, I think that, I agree with you to a point. McGuire admitted yep. that he used put it on his plaque if he goes in. He admitted that was his choice to admit that. And to me, he didn't test positive under the new testing system because it wasn't around then, but he admitted it. Uh, For Bonds, Bonds did not admit it, but Bonds was charged federally. And acquitted. And acquitted. All that information is public record and can go on his plaque. I I would not have a problem with that at all. We get to a point, though, these are going to be big plaques. Well, you know, then, then it's up to Jeff to, to write it tightly there at the Hall of Fame and, uh, and craft it. So uh, I, I don't have a problem with a big plaque either because, because the Hall is a place to be honored, but it's also a place to capture history. That, that's that's right. what it is. It's the Smithsonian of baseball. And so it's not, it can't just be the exalted status of these plaques. It has to be a lesson. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you go in there and, you know, it's not, it's not on the plaques, but it's not hidden either. Oh, well, this is a great player, you know, who is from the thirties and everything like that before integration. Exactly. Um, we, we know that. And it stands there as a testament to don't make these mistakes again. And I, I don't, I, I don't want to equate the, the two, the two issues there. But I, I think the steroid era should be should be honored there, but it also should come with a big underscored exclamation point. Don't screw up again. Don't let this happen. Yeah, and uh, it's one of my, you know, I, I love baseball history. Obviously, you do as well. I went to the Hall of Fame this summer, and it's it's one of those things where the Hall of Fame is essentially the official record of the game. Right. To just ignore what is not a full generation of players, but is at least half a generation of Hall of Fame eligible players or deserving players, is a grotesque misrepresentation of history. Right. Right. You cannot um, redact the steroid era from history. That's right. And it also not only is leaving out, there's a big difference between Jackson and Rose who played 50 years apart from each other. Uh, They're one player from each generation. It's not leaving out, wiping out an entire generation. That's a big thing. I also think that it distorts history to retroactively go back and punish players. You know, I know Tony La Russa was a guy there you probably know pretty well. Was there a manager during the steroid era that was more complacent in steroid use than La Russa? La Russa was honored by the Hall of Fame last year. He was up on stage. Right. It doesn't seem to... Only the players are taking the blame here, and I think that's not accurate. I don't think that's fair at all. Well, no, I, 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 I think when it comes to the Hall of Fame plaque, only the players are taking the, uh, the blame in a sense because... Um, a, their stats are there, and they're the. I mean, the players are what the game is about. 
Right. So it's not. You could a get rid of all the managers, the umpires, and the broadcasters in the Hall of Fame, and no one would really care. If you get rid of that's players, right. that becomes a problem. And so the, the back, the other side of that though is that they do have a heightened, they do get heightened responsibility for things. They get, you know, it's not exactly like the coverage of a game where the players get the get the glory, the manager gets the blame, depending on a win or a loss. Um, but the players are are what the game is about. The the players are the reason the hall is there. Um, it's not there to honor the builders and everything though it does. But uh, you know, so the the amount of blame leveled against them for the steroid era is going to be uh, much higher and, and even weighted far significantly different. But um, I, I think in that case, you know, to while the, the players take the brunt of it, uh, isn't everybody at fault? I mean, yes. Look, I mean, 98, fans were buying tickets. Owners were know. making a lot of money. Owners made a lot of money. Reporters... Reporters who uh, who are very down on uh, on the steroid era now wrote books right under their face. Sold, the story yeah, was sold a lot of money. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was right there. It wasn't the easiest story to get, and you know, I mean, anybody who now casts aspersions and s- says, "Well, you know, if I were there, I would have been a tough guy," you know, big bravado, sher- you know, old west sheriff calling people <laughs> for what they were. <laughs> Well, God help you. I hope. Uh, I hope you know. Ten years from now, we're not looking back on your beat and seeing some kind of, you know, federally indictable fraud going on with the team you cover. Yeah, way to miss that, champ. You know, I mean, you start casting stones. You better make sure to use the tired cliche. You're not working in a glass press box. We uh, come at things from a similar point of view with the Hall of Fame in that I think we would both put the players in and both think their use of performance-enhancing drugs, if they tested positive or admitted use, should be acknowledged. Uh, I agree with that. But right now there is no system in place to acknowledge any use. So if you were voting this year, would you vote for Barry Bonds? I I am not thankfully voting this year, and I can (laughs) Um, When will you be voting? uh, Boy, that's a good question. Two years from now? Okay, uh, so— Bonds, so Bonds and Clements will still be on the ballot. Yeah, yeah, and then, and at that point in time, I will have to uh, decide. Um, I I'll, I'll tell you this: this this is I, and I, I just I just don't want to give an answer for an answer's sake because I blissfully have not had to spend the time to think about it and soul search and do all that stuff. And for me to throw out an answer um, today without having a ballot and spending that time to really ruminate on it would be false. I just, I just don't want to do that. But I, I will say one thing that I have thought about, and if I am able to stay employed and remain a member and, and have an opportunity to vote for the Hall of Fame, all of which you know, I still have time, so it's still possible I won't. Um, if, uh, if I do, I, I want to be sure that if I vote for a Hall of Famer, he's a Hall of Famer. Um, and I don't waffle from year to year. I don't choose a guy one year because, uh, or I, I don't leave a guy off because he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer. That's ridiculous. Um, yeah, I uh, well, I, from my point of view as a voter, I, I, I would I would think that if I think a guy is a Hall of Famer this year, um, then he should be a Hall of Famer every year. I have a chance to vote for him. That's I be agree. Enough. Um, now. I, I went to the Hall of Fame and had an opportunity to uh, to go to some of the events there during an induction uh, when my colleague Rick Hummel was inducted into the Riders' Wing, 
and I was I, I I thought like you, well, what's the difference between a first ballot Hall of Famer and a Hall of Famer? This is you are one, you are one. Um, and I was struck by the players and the Hall of Famers themselves who put value on first ballot. I, I just I, I I walked away from that going, gosh, the 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 peers, the guys who are in, they really value that first ballot tag. Um, and and I, I I don't know that really kind of resonated with me that if if the if the class of individuals that we're putting in there put a value on that tag, then maybe it it should it means something that I had previously dismissed or diminished. Um, that said, I, I still think you approach the ballot with a Hall of Famer as a Hall of Famer, and if he makes it one year, then you should vote for him consistently. I agree, and we're getting into a problem now with even clean players. There's going to be a flooding of clean players. Lines have been drawn, and there's been writers who have made it clear they're not voting for anyone associated with steroids, even if those associations are suspicions. But we're going to kind of hit a point in a few years where there are 12 guys who never use that all exceed or meet Hall of Fame standards, and it's Mm -hmm. becoming a bit of a mess of a situation. Yeah, like, well, that's an interesting point. Just because you're saying because of the modern, uh, just because of the modern kind of game, just because of the modern game is more offensive oriented or the stats are there. Is that what you mean by that? Do you think that's a disproportionate amount of hall of famers? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're saying that there's going to be 12 deserving players who are eligible. You're just saying because the game has gotten better and, and historic standards for the hall of fame, 500 home runs, 400 home runs or whatever it is. are no, out of lack. I- it's because you know I've done a lot of Hall of Fame research and I look at these things closely. And mm-hmm. so we'll look at players that we know who had Hall of Fame careers but who have been associated with steroids. Obviously, Bonds and Clemens jump to the top of that list. Right. Now, the two of those guys are different because we knew they were Hall of Famers before they allegedly started using. Over the next couple of years, you have on the ballot coming on when we have clean players. You have Schilling, Biggio, mm-hmm. Reigns, Trammell, Musina, Glavin, Maddox, Smoltz, Pedro. These are guys – that all had Hall of Fame caliber careers. Some of them more obvious than others, but all of them meet standards. All of them right. exceed standards. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be a flood. You know, um, I don't, I mean, there are 10 spots on the ballot, so I guess ostensibly, if everybody voted the same 10 people, they would all get in. So there, there's kind of, but I, I see what you're saying. I mean, you, you have, and then down the horizon, you have Jeter and, uh, um, you know, a, a lot of guys out tools. Sure. Um, Chipper Jones, Chipper Jones, Randy Johnson, right? So, right, Rivera, um, obvious, you know. Rivera, yeah, yeah. I mean, you do have, and you know, you have some interesting kind of guys who, you know, where do they fit in the equation? The Larry Walkers of the world, um, you know, guys like that who might just be out on the edge of the discussion, but no, but will be part of the and influence in the vote. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it'll be. You're right, and uh, and the the risk you run with any of them, even people you suspect are clean, um, is the four or five years from now the tell-all biography where they say, "Well, I really pulled a fast one on the writers for there." Right. You know, um, because... I'm, I'm so glad to know that Roberto Alomar never used steroids. I'm glad he got that stamp of approval. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I don't know. Uh, it's, it, it is murky waters, but. Look, voting is never easy, and it's never clean, um, and that—that's what comes with voting. I mean, you can 
you can you can put pick voting out of any situation where we do it. High school class presidents to the presidential election. Um, you know, it's just not a clean, free, easy um, process. You don't do it by acclamation. That's that's why it's as much of a responsibility as a right. And in any form, voting is going to be messy. And there's it's going to have this, uh, you know, making sausage, you know, aspect. And I don't have a problem with if the Hall of Fame isn't the quick and easy, you know, rubber stamp that maybe sometime a romance, you know, we kind of romance it as. I, I, I would hope that it's dirty. And and also, let me also add, I like the fact that the that, that the uh, voting uh, electorate and and the voters change, and that in some ways they're allow that, that allows for the 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 to the Hall of Fame to reflect the passage of time and different eras have different voters and different values and different importance that they put on the players in, in which they vote for. I, I like that because it allows something to be alive and, and, uh, and evolve with time. Um, I, it frustrates me in no end when, you know, people hold the current voters or the current members of the Baseball Writers Association uh, responsible for things that happened in the 40s and 50s, you know. Right. We weren't. It's not there. your fault. Not your fault that Joe DiMaggio didn't get in on the first ballot. That's right. We weren't there, and 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 so we have improved. You know, so have you all in in other walks of life. You know, we 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 are thankfully not living in the 50s. We have internet. My problem with the idea that the membership of Hall of Fame voters is changing, it changes only by addition. There's no accountability from the Hall of Fame. There are people who, every year, we'll see, you're going to see this next year with Greg Maddox. We saw it mm-hmm. with Mike Schmidt, with Cal Ripken, who don't vote for players like that. Yeah. At some point, doesn't the Hall of Fame say, if you don't think Mike Schmidt's a Hall of Famer, we don't want you, we don't trust your judgment voting for anyone else? Just as the reverse is true, I understand that there's room for subjectivity, but Vinny Castilla got Hall of Fame votes. At, right. at some point, if you're not voting for Mike Schmidt and you are voting for Vinny Castilla, I don't think you should be voting anymore. Did somebody do that? Is it the same person? I don't know the answer to that, but the, Mike, Mike Schmidt did not get in with 100%. He's obviously a, a, a Hall of Famer, and I don't know if it's one of the same people that voted Vinny Castilla, but that would be a huge problem, wouldn't you think? Yeah, but that would be a problem in that person, and, right. and, I, and I agree. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, I do, you know, I don't know... Um, you know, it's one of the it's one of the things that I think is is interesting with these awards, um, and and obviously was done to the extreme this year. But the transparency of it, I think, is is interesting. You know, um, there's there's a, a few years ago, there was a rookie of the year ballot submitted um, in the National League that had a guy on it who was not a rookie. Yeah, this was the Volquez stuff. Yeah, that is unacceptable in my in my. Uh, in my estimation, that is that is that is that reflects the voter, but it also, in some ways, reflects the process that we did not um, either pick a knowledgeable electorate in that regard, or we didn't educate our electorate as to who was eligible for that award. And maybe we need to do that. Um, you know, so I, I think with the Hall of Fame, you know, you start you, you make these things public, and there brings a shame element or a uh, like you said, an accountability element. 
to it um, that if somebody did not vote for Mike Schmidt but did vote for Vinny Castilla, then then something is off there. Um, but the size of the uh, of the voting body for the Hall of Fame is such that uh, that it does normalize. It does cover for mistakes. Um, and, you know, we go round and round about, uh, you know, what's the best voting process for a Hall of Fame. They all have different ones. And uh, none of them, hey, it goes back to what I was saying about voting, none of them are, are clean. None of them are easy. Um, none of them are without controversy. But is there is there a model that is ideal for that that uh, that is different than just having, like like you said, just having addition um, and the only subtraction from a ballot is death? I think that making all of the votes public would go a long way. I think that the Hall of Fame, if I were running the Hall of Fame, I wouldn't just ask voters to vote. I would ask for a explanation as to why. Tell me why you're voting for a player. I don't need a full biography of every player, but I think three key things. What numbers are you looking at? What Hall of Famers did you compare them to? What, com- what contemporaries did you compare them to? I think give me that information. I think if you do that for every player you vote for and don't vote for, there's an accountability system where you might think that Jack Morris is a Hall of Famer. I don't know if you do or don't. I do not. But if you at least gave me reasons as to why, it would make the decision seem better. It would, mm. it would tell us. We talked about it at the very beginning about the accountability that writers get painted with a broad brush of they're not, nobody's looking at numbers. Right, right. Well, this would be an opportunity to tell us, and I don't think it's you know it would be more work, but I think that given what's at stake, the Hall of Fame, I don't think it's, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask for public votes, written explanation as to why or why not you're voting for someone. Someone may say they're not voting for McGuire because of a steroid use. I disagree with that reasoning, but at least it's a reason. Right. Um, the people who are saying, oh, McGuire isn't a Hall of Famer anyway, even if you discard the steroids, I, I can't see their logic there. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I think those things would help. In terms of the voting system itself, I think that there's an interesting history that it is only BBWAA members. There's a long history of that, but it's also a dated history. When that system came about, there was no internet. There were no broadcast journalists. I think Mm -hmm. you can include them. But more importantly, include talent evaluators. Include people whose job... How about GMs? Who vote for... uh, Well, GMs, yeah. I mean... I don't know. And scouts. You know, yeah. I mean, if they, this is the thing, is I almost, I, I agree to to a point with what you're saying, because if you require them to spell out their reasoning, writers, GMs, whoever is chosen to vote, then it forces them to take on a responsibility that's there um, and, and, and show their work, essentially. Yep. Um, I, I, get, I get frustrated when... Um, when fans or when critics throw in our face saying, uh, well, you guys shouldn't vote for the MVP. Why aren't the players and coaches, the people who actually play the game, voting for it? Uh, they vote for the gold glove. I would run I would run the MVP every year up against the votes for the gold glove. And I'm going to bet that the percentage of MVPs that people go, yeah, you know what, that's the right call, versus the percentage of gold gloves, they go, yeah, that's the right call, is much higher. That's exactly right. And defense is harder to measure. That's one thing. But right. players, I, I, when I said people who should be voting, I didn't say players. No, no. I, but they don't vote for the gold glove. Managers, coaches do. Right. And but there's a different skill between playing the game and managing the game and evaluating talent. I agree that there is. Um, but I, I, would, I would say that a title, and maybe this goes to make your point about the baseball writers currently, I would say that a title 
only gets you, you know, to the door of voting. Proving that you're going to take it responsibly and earn that vote gets you through it. And, you know, just because I am, and, and this is just a personal thing, just because I have a Baseball Writers Association card, that allows me to be eligible for a ballot. The fact that I take it seriously and put in effort makes me deserving of one. I same agree. Thing, same thing with the Hall of Fame. You you prove to me that you're going to put in the effort that is required, expected, and and should be demanded for having that ballot. Then that's fine. And then I I'll, I I would probably go along with expanding the electorate or even reducing it, but changing who's a member of it. That's you know? what I'm in favor of. Yep. Yeah. But but you have to but you can't just we can't just say this guy's a broadcaster therefore ipso facto he's deserving or this guy's a general manager therefore he's serving I don't care what it says on your business card I care about the effort you're going to put into it I agree and the same is true for the writers but that's Absolutely. not what's in place for the writers now right now it is if you've been a writer and a member for more than ten years you're a voter and right. some of the voters put a lot of thought and effort into it and some don't and the right. people that don't shouldn't be voting. It's gonna. It's but also let, let's 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 acknowledge the fact that the ten year window though does offer somewhat of a weed out. I mean, if you're if you're doing the job for ten years, and I will add, if you're doing the job for ten years in this current era, um, or you're a member of the Writers Association for ten years in this current era, a lot of times you've already put in a lot of effort and earned your stripes. You've been listening to Derek Gould. Check out Derek's work covering the Cardinals at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and give him a follow on Twitter at DGould. Derek, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again to Derek for taking the time right there. I love that interview. I love Derek's honesty. Can't thank him enough for taking the time. I went way over the amount of time that I told him I would take. So thanks again to Derek for taking the time and a lot of it right before the holidays to join me on the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as well. I want to thank a few more people before I wrap things up entirely. I want to thank my friend Zach Milliken. Zach is a graphics designer who really helped me get my website up and running. He continues to help with some of the day-to-day maintenance and overall look and feel of the site. If you're interested in graphics design or web design, you're looking for someone to follow on Twitter, you can give Zach a follow at ZachDM, Z-A-C-K-D-M, or check out his websites, paintedx.com and designtypes.tv. I also want to thank two bands for letting me use their music. Thanks to Baker for letting me use their song Reputation as the opening theme. And thanks to Scamper for letting me use their song Barcelona, which is playing right now. You can find out more information on both of those bands on MySpace Music. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. We'll have a new episode up soon.